You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. The coronavirus pandemic is surging in the U.S. with record-breaking numbers of infections and a climbing death toll. For over six months, policymakers have debated how to stop the spread of the virus, and most safety measures were left up to the states to implement. In this segment, Dr. Leanna Wynn, an emergency physician, joined the Post to discuss the critical choices leaders will need to make in order to stop the destruction of COVID-19. Let's listen. Good afternoon and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Frances Steed Sellers, a senior writer at the Washington Post. My first guest today is Dr. Lena Wen. She's an emergency physician, a visiting professor of public health at George Washington University, and the former city health commissioner for the city of Baltimore. And she's also a contributing columnist to the Washington Post. So it gives me particular pleasure, Dr. Wen, to welcome you to this forum. Thank you so much. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yeah. So with your op-eds, you wrote one today that was published today about the impact of reopening schools. And I'd love to ask you about that. Why now? Why you wrote it now? And what do you think that impact could be? Well, I'm a parent of two young children, and many of my friends and colleagues are having these conversations now about what's going to happen if and when schools reopen for in-person instruction. And I wanted to write about a scenario for what could unfold, especially in these states that are undergoing rapid surges. And I think there are lots of these questions that we just have not thought about. So for example, if you have a community where one in a hundred people have COVID-19 and may not know that they have the disease because we know about asymptomatic transmission, you could be walking in on day one in a school where there are a thousand students, where 10 people on day one have the infection and could spread it to others. So there could be an outbreak within weeks. I also wanted to talk about the issue that we're facing with lack of testing and how this would impact schools. Imagine if we continue to have this backlog of testing of up to 14 days, and let's say that a student develops a fever. What do you do? Do you keep the student home for 14 days while awaiting this test? And do you then also quarantine the entire class? and ask them also to get testing, but that will take another 14 days to come back. And what if they're, what about their siblings and their families? I mean, I just fear that there are many of these concerns that we have not thought through, that school administrators will be facing political pressures in a way that many governors faced and will be tempted to take shortcuts rather than waiting until the surge is, is controlled, rather than waiting until we have the resources in place. And I think that you know we as a society need to decide what's important. And we've already bailed out banks and airlines. Maybe it's time that we put in the resources and the attention and the priority on our schools and our children and teachers and staff and their families too. When you wrote, um, you obviously realized that there are different risks, right, for older children than younger children. I'd ask, like to ask you about that. Should we be thinking differently for children under 10 who are less likely to spread the virus than for those older kids who react and seem to spread the virus more like adults? Yeah, so I, I'm glad that you asked the question because I think it's important to clarify the science of what we know and what we don't know. What we know is that children do tend to get much less severely ill than adults. 
Um, however, some children can get very ill. Some children have ended up in the ICU, and unfortunately, some have died tragically due to COVID-19. What we are seeing, what we're beginning to see, and again, the science is still um, is still in process. There was a large study done in South Korea where they traced um, nearly 60,000 individuals and found that children older than 10, 10 or older, have the same likelihood of spreading COVID-19 as adults versus children who are under 10 are less likely to spread it, maybe even half as likely to spread it. The problem is this, half of a lot of transmission is still a lot of transmission. And especially if there is so much asymptomatic transmission occurring and children tend to not get sick, I fear that we'll get into a situation where adults, the families and grandparents of students and the teachers and custodial workers and school counselors and others that are in the school, that they're going to be the canaries in the coal mine, that they're going to get sick first. And it's going because we have limited testing and contact tracing capabilities, we could really get to a point where there are outbreaks that are occurring, super spreader events that are occurring before we even know um, that there is spread to begin with. So you've also written about three potential scenarios looking ahead, a complete shutdown, uh, some sort of in-between message, and then there's sort of a whack-a-mole uh, approach to tackling this virus. Tell me the implications of each of those um, and how they would play out, given your concerns about schools. Sure, I think that there are three scenarios, as you said. Um, the one is the status quo. This is the, the path that we seem to be on right now, where there are piecemeal policy solutions that are frankly too little too late. I mean, in some of these states that are undergoing really rapid surge, we're seeing bars closed, but not restaurants, where there are mandates for face masks in certain counties and cities, but not even for the entire state. And I think we are seeing exactly what happens if you have that, which is even if we get to a place of a plateau, as has happened in some of these hardest hit states, the plateau is at a very high level of infection. That's unsustainable. I mean, our hospitals continue to become overwhelmed and we have many more preventable deaths. We have the opposite extreme. The second scenario is we could go into a full national shutdown, a full national shutdown in the way that we didn't do the first time around. Many states did the first time back in March or April, but only half of the states had full stay in place orders. And we also saw that many of these states reopened too quickly without the safeguards in place. And so we could actually do a full shutdown for four to six weeks. Some um, public health experts are, are saying that this is the most effective approach, which I agree with, but I also worry that we will lack the political will to do that. So I think most likely what we'll get to is scenario number three, which is what I call whack-a-mole. And in a way, it's the best that we could hope for right now without a coordinated national strategy, which is that the states that are undergoing explosive spread could limit their indoor gatherings, could close down bars and restaurants for the summer, so that we have some chance of getting schools to be reopened in the fall. And in the other, in the meantime, the other states that are on the verge of explosive spread could dial back reopening. Think about reopening not as an on and off switch, but as a dial. And they could reimpose some of the restrictions, monitor these trends very carefully, and we could actually get to a point where we're managing the surge in one place, understanding that the surge is going to happen in another, like waves but at least we will not see the catastrophic effects that we would in scenario number one. Right, that's very interesting. A lot of readers and listeners have, have sent in messages and a lot reflects some confusion about how to take the advice from experts like you and make it practical. And I have a question here, I'm gonna read it from Kathleen Ingram from Virginia who asks, what is the truth about wearing masks? 
what does the data say? Do the countries with improved infection rates have national mask mandates? It's a great question, and there is a lot of misunderstanding and misinformation about masks, including some that are perpetuated by our elected leaders. And so it is really important, first of all, for us to have consistent messaging, but also that it's based on the science. And so I do want to acknowledge up front that the guidance around masks has changed. In the beginning, back in January, February, public health experts, including myself, were saying to the public, don't wear masks. We want to reserve it for healthcare workers. But the reason was we didn't know at that time about asymptomatic spread, that 40% of spread could be from asymptomatic individuals who are nearly as infectious as those who have symptoms. Um, and now we also know about potentially aerosol transmission, that it's not just these large respiratory droplets that when you sneeze and cough, they come out, but also the virus could be transmitted just by speaking and breathing through these much smaller aerosols. So now there are dozens of studies that have indicated um, the importance of wearing masks that, for example, there was a Lancet study that found that if everyone wears masks, that we can reduce the rate of transmission by fivefold. And I just think of it like a medication. Imagine if we found a pill that could reduce your risk of transmitting or getting COVID-19 by five times we would all want to take that pill. And we should think about the mask the same way. On top of that, there are economic projections as well, including by Goldman Sachs, showing that if we have a universal mask wearing policy, we will prevent a reduction in GDP by 5%. So there is a public health reason, there's a moral reason. And I think on top of that, um, or, or there's an economic reason, but I think on top of it, there's a moral reason that wearing a mask is our way of showing that we respect one another, that we care about one another, in this time of a global public health catastrophe. Thank you. Another question that came up from Barbara Thompson in California asking how long one can be asymptomatic with COVID-19. Another question that I hear a lot. Yeah, so it's a really good question and it's a difficult one for us to measure because by definition, if you're asymptomatic, we're not necessarily capturing your asymptomatic until somehow you may get a test for that, that transmission. So the guidance generally is that if you are, if you have symptoms, that um, you should remain away from others for about two weeks time. And I would imagine the same type of guidance would be, or the same would extrapolate to those who are asymptomatic as well. But again, the problem is you don't know when your asymptomatic period really begins. And so that's why, again, mask wearing is so critical because that's our way of protecting others from us in case we happen to be asymptomatic carriers and that we're protected from others if they happen to be asymptomatic as well. You've talked about the importance of public trust in communicating uh, the evolving science of um, the coronavirus, and it does change, as you've said, on masks and other things and aerosolization. We're learning as we go. But how do you how do you propose regaining that public trust? What are we not doing right in terms of communicating the science? Well, back in Mar or in January, Francis, I wrote an article for the Post about how public health depends on public trust. And at that time, I was referring to the lack of transparency by the Chinese government and what we've seen before in other outbreaks when there is lack of public trust in the government and in, um, in, in science. And I think we are seeing that play out now where something as basic as wearing masks has gotten politicized, where somehow public health has been pitted against the economy 
instead of understanding that public health is the roadmap, is the pathway to opening our schools and reopening our, our businesses. Um, and so I think a lot of this has to um, hinge on a clear, consistent messaging that is put out by everyone, that our so elected leaders have to let public health leaders lead in this time. So update me now on the science, particularly the science of the vaccine. Um, Dr. Fauci has suggested that we might have a widely avail available vaccine early or in the early months of 2021. Um, given the unprecedented speed and the pressure on producing a vaccine, do you have any concerns about safety, uh, long-term efficacy, side effects? So we need to make sure that these studies are done carefully and rigorously because we cannot take shortcuts here. The shortcuts would not only undermine the safety and efficacy, as you said, but it would also undermine the public's trust. I already have a concern about the name Operation Warp Speed because some people might take from that that somehow this is being done um, in a way um, that, um, that is not rigorous according to scientific protocol. So I think that two things have to happen. One, the science has to be rigorous. There cannot be political pressure that's put on in order to expedite the science, number one. And number two, we also have to very urgently launch a public education campaign about vaccines because it would not be a good scenario if we have a vaccine that's developed and distributed that actually is useful, but people refuse to take it because of vaccine skepticism. And to do that work, we need to invest in the public education now. We need to be enlisting credible messengers and trusted messengers who are from the communities that they serve in order to do so. So we had some big news last week, at Oxford University and AstraZeneca, and there's also advances with Moderna working with the NIH. Um, what are the prospects that you see for these particular vaccines or any others on the horizon? I think it's very hopeful. I mean, we are launching into phase three trials at record speed. We also potentially have multiple vaccine candidates. And so I've heard of this as uh, being referred to as multiple shots on goal, which would be great if one or any um, or multiple, several of these um, candidates end up panning out and phase three studies show that they are in, in fact effective at preventing COVID-19 on a population level, that would be wonderful. But I think there are other steps that we just also have to consider. We need to keep in mind that it's not the vaccine that's going to save your life, it's the vaccination. We have to do that public education. We also have to make sure that our supply chain is intact. I would not want to be in a situation where we run out of vials and syringes and needles because we have not had a national strategy for ensuring our supply chain, the way that we run out of reagents and swabs for, um, for, for testing. Um, and we also um, need to keep in mind that the vaccine is still a long way off and that there are steps that we have to be taking now, including physical distancing, mask wearing, washing our hands in order to get us to that point of getting a vaccine. Physical distancing, mask wearing and washing our hands. Thank you very much, Dr. Lena Wen, for joining us. I'll be back shortly to speak with Dr. David Scorton about the coronavirus and how to tackle it. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.